The Amazing Spider-Man has been served well in animation from 1967 and the debut of the first animated series to today with the impending debut of another Disney cartoon series appropriately entitled Spider-Man. In between, the wall-crawling hero has been a loner, part of a team, accomplished, incompetent, young, old, in New York and in far-off dimensions. Some of these scenarios suited the character better than others, but all of them managed to bring the wall-crawling money spinner to new and eager audiences. None were more eager than the kids of 1967, who tuned in each week until 1970 to see the hero from the comics pages fight bad guys on the boob tube. Stan Lee had longed to see Marvel's characters reach a wider audience, and always envisioned Marvel as being like Disney, with a slew of movies and TV shows highlighting the company's roster. Stan was tireless in his devotion to this goal, especially in the 1970s, when he started lecturing on the college circuit and was soliciting feedback directly from the youth of America. To be fair, Stan was simply 30 years ahead of his time. The 1967 Spider-Man series debuted a mere five years after Spidey's comic book debut, and the look of the early episodes is very definitely that of the Steve Ditko-drawn comics. However, there is also a heavy influence of then-Spider-Man artist John Romita as well. Romita took over the art duties on the Amazing Spider-Man comic book after Ditko quit, and as Marvel's art director, he also worked on the designs for the cartoon series. Due to the animation limitations of the time, these designs omitted the spider webs from the body of Spider-Man's costume and use of different stock shots meant that the spider on the character's chest vacillated between having six and eight legs, sometimes in the same scenes. The use of stock footage added to the overall cheapness of the affair, but it also gave these cartoons a charm that perhaps a more accomplished production wouldn't have. Stan Lee oversaw the scripts for the first 20 episode season and, perhaps not surprisingly, this is the season most like the comics. In addition to scripts that are almost literal adaptations, episodes like Captured by J. Jonah Jameson, Never Step on a Scorpion and Will Crawls the Lizard use the titles and scripts of their respective comic counterparts, there are also numerous appearances by comic villains such as Electro, Doctor Octopus, the Green Goblin and Sandman, as well as villains created specifically for the cartoon such as Doctor Noah Body, Doctor Magneto and Doctor Von Schlick. There were even some villains that weren't Doctors. There was at least one Professor. For this reason, this first season remains a favourite of mine, a series I managed to catch when it was a regular summer holiday schedule filler for the ITV network in the 1970s and 80s. The episodes that stuck to the plots of the comics were my preferred viewing choices. For the second season, the production personnel changed. The first season was produced by Gantre Lawrence, whilst the second was produced by Ralph Bakshi. Bakshi is an accomplished animator, but I'm not entirely convinced he was best suited to Spider-Man. Under his tenure, the second and third seasons became darker and more fantasy-based. Spider-Man regularly took more flights of fancy in these episodes, fighting subterranean bad guys who'd stolen all the surface world's buildings, energy creatures posing as actors and giants from Mars. The third season had a number of episodes that simply reworked footage from earlier episodes into new stories, resulting in new episodes like The Winged Thing and Connor's Reptiles feeling like reruns, although the third season did feature an appearance by Murray Jane Watson in the episode The Big Brainwasher. 
Perhaps surprisingly given its tone and feel, it was left to the second season of the show to tackle the origin of Spider-Man, which it did in its opening episode. The first season began with a standard adventure that could be heard anywhere, but Bakshi decided to go back to the basics for his opening salvo. And as usual, the episode opens with one of the finest theme songs in television history, which I will play after this break. You see, I'm doing something a little different today, and I'm going to provide you with an audio commentary on the very first adaptation of Spider-Man's origin for an external media. So after you've listened to some promos from some other people's podcasts, pop the origin of Spider-Man into your DVD player of choice, and join me, won't you, in watching along. Hi, I'm Blaine Dowler, host of Bedtime in the Public Domain. In this podcast series, I'll read bedtime stories from books in the public domain. Each weekday, I'll release one chapter or short story from a selected larger collection. Once the entire book is done, I'll also release an audiobook version, including all chapters or short stories, before taking a few days off to prepare the next series. All stories will be from one of the children's categories from the Project Gutenberg website, because they do an excellent job of editing the content to ensure it's in public domain, and I have neither the time nor expertise required to do that myself. Suggestions for the stories that come next are welcome and encouraged. You can find the show at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. Hi there, I'm back from that little commercial interlude, and I've moved rooms. You may have noticed by the the slight echo that is now behind me, but I've queued up the origin of Spider-Man from uh, the DVD, and I just wish to press play. So in three, two, one, there we go. There's the in colour symbol, which I'm pretty certain was uh, was always cut off when it aired in the UK, because obviously by the time I was watching this in the late 1970s, the, uh, I'll just turn it down a bit, the um, colour television was already a, a thing, wasn't it? So I can't imagine that we needed to show that. These opening credits are, are largely just clips from various different episodes, as mentioned. You can see straight away that the webbing is largely missing from our hero's costume. Whilst it's present in the title of the episode, Spider-Man, the title card were Peter, just as he is right now, holds up his camera with your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, does not have the hyphen in it. Now, given that uh, Spider-Man's creator or co-creator Stanley's quite insistent on the importance of the hyphen, its omission's curious. It's even missing here on the title card, The Origin of Spider-Man. Although that, at least, is on a, a wonderful, moody shot of the docks at sunset. The opening shot, the opening establishing shot, is obviously New York, a big part of Spider-Man lore. And uh, again, some wonderful background plates of Manhattan. Lots of reds and yellows and, and purples. The animation of the non-static shots isn't isn't quite as good, but the, the level of detail in the background is, is stunning. We're, we've opened at Midtown High, although it's it's not named as such in the actual cartoon. Um, and the characters that uh, we see here very clearly have a bit of Ditko to them. Um, some Ramita as well. Uh, Sal and Moose are in a hot rod pondering what girl to ask out for a soda. And it has to be pointed out that the animation in this is light years ahead of that in the 1967 Fantastic Four cartoon. 
I mean, the character work on these opening scenes is actually really good. And as I've mentioned, the, the background plates are wonderfully moody and colourful. The narrator, who isn't Stan Lee, oddly enough, has mentioned that this is September. And I'm presuming that Moose is supposed to be Flash Thompson. But they change, they subtly change the, the dynamic of the opening here, whilst it's still similar to Amazing Fantasy 15, Moose and Sal approach Peter to ask if he wouldn't mind going with them because they need somebody to G up the numbers, essentially, so that there's enough guys for the girls. It's not like California, you know, there's two guys to every girl. Or two girls to every guy. Whatever it was, the Beach Boys said. Uh, and Peter says no, he rejects the offer because uh, he's going to watch the demonstration in radioactivity, which is a slightly different... Right, I pause there because that line, bookworm, will come back later on. Um, what was I saying? Oh yeah, he, he rejects them. Uh, so it's a different dynamic than him being picked on and persecuted, um, as in the, the main comic book series. We've now cut to the science lab, which, again, isn't labelled as to which science lab it is. Character animation here isn't as impressive as it was in the opening scenes, but there are nice little touches, like the guy polishing his specs. Um, there you go, Peter bemoaning the fact that he's, uh, he's being referred to as a bookworm. The animation in the lab here is very padded. I mean, lots of shots of futuristic tape-to-tape reels or reel-to-reel, -reel or whatever they were called. Um, but the, the actual animation is, is quite exemplary. The actual unit that they're using looks very similar to the one Electro uses to recharge himself up in, in the comic books. The backgrounds are realistically detailed, apart from in that very shot, which doesn't have a background. How typical that that should appear, just as I'm talking about how good the, uh, the backgrounds are. Those the spider that will, unbeknownst to Peter at this moment in time, have a, a significant impact on his life. There are some lovely shots of the, the coruscating arc of experimental energies that the, the spider is about to lower himself into. At least this spider does indeed have eight legs. Now, going through this, it's something I'll mention a couple of times. There is a lot of padding. And there's some of the story excised that perhaps could have been used in lieu of this padding. Uh, Peter stood with uh, five other people who were watching this experiment, plus the four other people in the room, which looks like three professors and a technician. The spider falls onto Peter's hand. So it's very fortunate that it falls onto Peter, given how many people are there. Just, there's a what if for you. And his face contorts in pain. My problem with this little section of animation is Peter's face doesn't look the same from panel to panel or cell animation to cell animation. Which strikes me as, as a tad odd. That said, again, the colours, the animation, everything else is really cool. Peter leaves feeling a little bit off after what's just happened to him. Uh, another lovely shot, though, another background plate of uh, New York City at night. Some glorious greens and purples. Peter is on his motorbike. So apparently this Peter Parker 
uh, has his motorbike in high school as opposed to getting it in college. So I don't know, I don't know what the age for riding a motorcycle is in the United States. He's obviously younger. That shot though is absolutely gorgeous. Peter on the docks, his face in shadow, the moody lighting behind him, not just ripped from the pages of a Ramita drawn comic book. I'm pretty sure that is a panel in a Ramita comic book, but it's a, simply a gorgeous image in its own light. Uh, Peter decides to walk home, still musing over, over what's occurred. Uh, apparently just leaves his bike at the docks, because we never see his, his bike again. Uh, he walks into two biker types, who also don't seem to have bikes, who challenge Peter for accidentally bumping into them. And uh, Peter is, is able to withstand their blows. A bit of repeated animation there from inside the, uh, the hall, where he got bitten. The faces of the two bikers, as Peter just takes the punch and then swikes to hit them and knocks over a lap post. It's very comical, as is the running. They run like Scooby-Doo characters. You're expecting a zoinks in the background. Another repeated piece of animation, that same shot of Peter clenching his fist as he, he wonders what's, what's happening to him. What happens now is actually really effective given the limited animation techniques of the time. Peter's busy pondering what's occurring. And he wanders out into the street because he's, he's not paying attention to what he's doing. People walking in this cartoon is actually really funny if you actually just watch the legs. Um, he's obviously not paying attention. The, the car... Aka, sorry, nearly steers right into him. And as in the comics, Peter leaps out of the way, high above. The car crashes. Lovely touch that it spills oil everywhere. That was a touch they didn't have to do. Peter is now clinging to the walls, which you can see if you're watching this along with me. But the point that I'm trying to make is what they do here with their limited animation is they, they, achieve, they, they achieve this dizzying effect of a vertigo by simply zooming the animation cells around. And it's it's really a really well accomplished scene. I mean, Peter looks a little bit large in the faraway shots crawling up the walls and certainly on that building he looks quite huge. And he's making very, very impressive leaps. And of course we're getting the, the wonderful jazzy theme tunes that, that this series was famous for. But the, that, that shot of uh, the just spinning around and moving the camera around the different animation background cells and zooming in and then spinning around and coming back. Absolutely gorgeous, moody shot there of, of Spider-Man climbing down what is presumably a clothesline or a telephone line because he's not got his costume yet, but absolutely, some absolutely gorgeous uses of, of colour. One of the good things about this cartoon series is they are able to use Peter's internal monologues in the same way that the, the comics did. So that, that's a nice touch. It's got him all figuring it out here in a much more logical and rational way than perhaps he did in, in the animated series that follow this or, or the, the live action series of the 70s and the Raimi films.
I like that idea of becoming um, a professional stuntman. Note, this is the only scene with Aunt May and Uncle Ben. That's it. That's the only appearance of Aunt May and Uncle Ben. So Peter's in his, his lab, which is basically his bedroom. Basically, let's not uh, let's not bump it up any more than it actually is. He's actually got quite a nice house in Forest Hills. It's, it, there must be a well-to-do family, which kind of contradicts what we'll later find out. If he was going to go into exhibitions and being a stuntman, why does he need to invent web fluid and a costume? Which is the first thing he does here in in the the actual ad in the actual Amazing Fantasy Fifteen story. He goes out to cash in first by being a wrestler, and that's where he needs the flamboyant costume, and he comes up with the webbing and such. Here he does all of that before he does anything, which doesn't make a lot of sense when you you start thinking about it. That he should really. You know, and it's not like they didn't have time to do that. They could have trimmed a lot of the the stock, some of which is coming up later. And unpadded. Paul Scholes provides the voice of Spider-Man. For many people, he is the voice of, of Peter Parker. Wonderful little animation glitch there as, as he jumps out of the window. The colour on his costume inverts, so the red parts are blue and the blue parts are red. That's, and that's really weird looking. One of the things that I was just talking about is they had the time in this episode to expand upon it. Let's see him go out and, and do the animation stuff, uh, the wrestling stuff or whatever. That's straight out of the comics. That's shot of him web shooting. Um, and instead, they waste a lot of time here of Spider-Man just swinging around the city. Now, I kind of get that he's a little bit drunk on his power and he's enjoying his power. But from a story point of view... There is much more to Amazing Fantasy 15 that they could have... His first stop will be the nearest TV studio, he says. Well, if you hadn't spent so much time faffing around, swinging around, you'd have got there already. And then he stops and says, that's my first job. And then he carries on swinging for the next 20 minutes. Well, all right, it's not 20 minutes, but you know what I mean. Um, it does highlight, again, the wonderful jazzy score and the fluidity of the swinging animation, which is, is very, very good. But there's no denying that this goes on far too long, given that they, they could have squeezed in a little bit more with regards to um, the actual plot. Comedy Cat. The Comedy Cat witnesses Spider-Man and decides to leap off the bin. Um, and one of the things with only having that one scene with May and Ben is that the death of Ben, which obviously we all know is coming, doesn't really carry the weight that it should. So it, it's very odd to me that they made these choices. That face is a Ditko face, undeniably. Just traced directly from the comic books. And again, he's, he's just swinging around before he decides to go to the, the TV studio to um, cash in on his spider powers. He will eventually get there, I promise you. And there he is. He's now at the, the TV studio. He's not met anybody. He's not talked to anybody. He's not... That's a terrible piece of animation. Him walking down the corridor. He's not met anyone. He's not talked to anyone. All of a sudden, a guy runs past him with a gun and carrying a briefcase. He's still... He's, he's rather naturally attired for a thief like that. Again, the animation here is awful. 
stark contrast to the um, the wonderful animation that we've seen previously. Here there's two police guards. Oh, I don't know, maybe they're not policemen, but guards for the, the facility. So Spider-Man basically though just lets the guy go for no reason. There's no motivation behind it really. Um interestingly, and I think this is this is key to this particular story, you have to be on Spider-Man's side when he does that. That's one of the things that the Raimi movies got absolutely bright and that the amazing Spider-Man movie bollocked up amazingly badly is that um, when Peter says in Raimi's Spider-Man movie, not my problem, as an audience member, you're like, yeah, stick it to the man, Peter. It's not your problem. So that when the big reveal happens later on, you're on, you know, you're shocked. You're as shocked as Peter is. And there's a lesson to be learned there. Um, oh, that's an absolutely gorgeous shot of the police car, even if the siren is is really quite large. Whereas here, the changing around, you, you've been told that Uncle Ben's an important character. But we've had one scene with one line of dialogue. And here we've got the scene where Peter's returning home to find out what's happened. The police are outside his house. You all know what's going to happen from here. Back to the animation being really quite good in these scenes. The backgrounds, the, the character work, all, all exceptionally well done. Oh no! Uncle Ben has been shot, which we didn't see coming. Again, it doesn't quite have the weight to it because Uncle Ben's only had one scene in the entire thing. There's also none of the hubris involved with it because we haven't seen Peter cashing in. They've skipped over that completely and totally. So, I mean, the ending plays out pretty well. Hello, Adam. Hello. Um, the ending plays out pretty well, as, as it does in the comic books. There's a, a lovely shot of uh, Peter changing in an alleyway. Again, the use of colours, but then you cut immediately to a piece of animation, a close-up um, of Spider-Man that is absolutely terrible. So the animation is a mixed bag. The swinging around scenes, of which we're going to get another minute of, and the kick in the actual opening theme. Now, I don't recall them doing this much in the actual show, kicking in the actual opening credit theme to signify a, a major moment. Um, good use of the animation, though, to show the passage of time. What they do is they keep, they've kept the forward figure, the figure, ah, Ditko, Spider-Man swinging towards the camera. They've kept the forward figure the same, then blended different background plates. So it's a really effective way of showing Spider-Man just continues to swing, but the background's changing in such a manner is a really effective way of, of signifying how far he's swinging. He's already mentioned that the old Acme warehouse is some considerable ways away. Um, why he keeps swinging past that same bridge is something I've not quite figured out. But obviously there's a lot of bridges in New York. There's Washington, Brooklyn, a couple of others, 59th Street, 2nd Street, whatever that Simon and Garfunkel song is. Uh, gorgeous shot there of the police shining their, um, their flashlights onto the Acme building. Why the burglar is pointing his gun from behind a that same shot, Dick Spider, um, from behind a, a crate at nobody. I've no idea. Real stealthy move though, Spider-Man, to, to just bang in through the window. The cops not got anything to say about that. 
perhaps this would have had a little bit more impact if they'd, they'd kept his face in shadow. But earlier on, the guy was wearing one of those masks, you know, like a handkerchief tied up over the bottom half of your face, like um, like cowboys do. He was wearing one of them, so, you know, perhaps the reveal. I mean, again, this is a mixed bag of animation. The animation on the burglar, who isn't a burglar, the, it is a burglar in this, I suppose. The animation on him is is really good. The animation on Spider-Man, less than spectacular. Um, but here's the big reveal. Oh, lovely piece of shading there as Spider-Man enters the, the room to see the burglar. Who isn't given a name in this story, as he isn't in Amazing Fancy 50. There must also come great responsibility. So again, it's not Uncle Ben that teaches him that lesson in, in this, like in Amazing Fantasy 15, where it's the omniscient narrator. Here, Peter comes to that realization himself, um, which is a bit odd. And from this moment forward, he, he dedicates himself. Um, as an adaptation, this brilliant, brilliant, there's a brilliant flub there. He leaps to a building that isn't there. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's a Stanley line, if ever there was one, but it's not Stan delivering it. Um, as adaptations of Spider-Man's origin go, that's not bad. It's better than the amazing Spider-Man. Um, it doesn't quite hit the emotional beats that the Raimi version reaches. And I think they were all solvable problems in this. I, I really do. I think, you know, remove some of the padding and you could have easily fitted the wrestling scene in. You could have easily fitted some more hubris in. Maybe one or two more scenes with Uncle Ben. And you could still have fitted this all into the runtime of this cartoon, which is, what, 20 minutes and change? Because Amazing Fantasy 15 is only 12, 12 pages, 15 pages. Um, this episode isn't credited with a specific writer. Although three writers are credited in the end credits. Uh, Paul Souls, though, gets his credit as, as voice, but he doesn't get uh, credited as thingy. And it's Spider-Man appears in Marvel Comics magazines. Anyway, that was uh, a little bit of a change of pace. For, for me to do an audio commentary. I've not done an audio commentary for a bit. At this point in the show, we normally leap into feedback, but um, I'm going to be, I'm going to rip off Return to Magnus and say, well, because of uh, the amount of excellence in this episode, there was no room for feedback this week. But given that the episode's only 26 minutes long, that is a blatant lie. And there is no feedback this week because nobody sent me any. That's just the... Uh, just the, the, the long and the tall of it. Long and the short of it. Big and the tall of it. Whatever the hell that saying is. Uh, as usual, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a Two True Freaks presentation. If you want to keep shows like this on the air, pop over to the Two True Freaks website. When you're buying something from Amazon, use the Amazon link. It gives us a kickback. You pay nothing extra. And that's a bargain by anybody's measure. Um, you know, you get all this content, but when you buy from Amazon, you give us a kickback. Get all this for free. You know, but...
A no mistake. A bargain. A bargain. Um, I'll be back uh, with whatever takes me fancy next. This was just this was just a rough experiment to see if I could still do audio commentaries. And uh, I'll be back next time with whatever tickles my ivories. Take care.